Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. The sustained growth happens every day, um, just in fellowship with the Lord, in fellowship with other believers. There's a, um, a book by a guy called Miles J. Stanford, and um, it's called the, uh, the Complete Green Letters. And one of the chapters, every chapter is a, a principle of spiritual growth. And the second chapter is called Time. And he says, when God wants to make an oak, or sorry, when God wants to make a squash, he takes six months. When he wants to, to make an oak tree, he takes 100 years. And then if you look at the visible growth of an oak tree, that might happen over the course of, you know, maybe four to six weeks throughout the year. If you were to measure around that, that tree, you'd be able to see that growth. You'd be able to measure that growth. But the rest of that year is the solidification of that new growth. And um, I just, I'm grateful for that, you know, six-week period of Bible college. But it's just been the day in, day out, fellowship with other believers and taking opportunities to to walk alongside them and also when the lord presented opportunities to to walk uh to uh preach his gospel to unbelievers as well so why do i say all this um honestly i just hope to be an encouragement i am a normal person i'm just a a believer that i i try to say that i'm a, a faithful believer study the word and 2 Peter 1.3 reminds us that God has given all of us, every single believer, everything that we need for life and godliness. One of the core, uh, core parts of that, of course, is fellowship. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures, but then we have each other. The scriptures, his words, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He has things that he wants to accomplish through us. And his word is inspired and it is useful for every single aspect in our lives. And then another wonderful verse that I that I love and actually my wife Esther had um, engraved into our wedding band, Hebrews 10.25 reminds us to spur one another on to love and good works as we walk with the Lord day by day. So um, I'm, I'm honored to be able to, to sit here and, and to spend time in the word and study through Malachi as we'll do in a, in a moment, but I, um, I sure don't have all the answers. Uh, neither, none of us do. But what we do have is the scripture, is the Holy Spirit, is each other for a refining, a sharpening of iron sharpens iron. And I'm so grateful that we can learn from each other so many things because God is at work in each and every one of our lives. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really, really grateful for who the Lord is and I'm grateful as well as Dave was reading out earlier about the values that Calvary Chapel Newcastle has. That's, that's a core, one of the core values that we have. It's our aim as believers. We are blessed to be, to be a blessing in our families, in our community, wherever the Lord is grateful or wherever the Lord is, has placed us. Now, I'm grateful that 
since my wife Esther and I moved to Newcastle uh, five years ago to be closer to two of her brothers, you all have been our family. You all have been our community. Now, some of you are new to this family. Some of you are very new to this community, but Calvary Chapel Newcastle has been a core thing, um, a core part of what makes Newcastle home for us and so grateful to raise our, our twins here in a community of imperfect, but I believe God-fearing people who are faithful in your families, in your workplace, and in this community, wherever God has put you. So as... Um, as Dave mentioned earlier, both the Daves mentioned earlier, over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at this major minor prophet called Malachi. I say major minor because the minor prophets kind of get a, a bad rap. Like, um, well, we'd say back in America, like a redheaded stepchild or maybe more appropriately, an annoying tag-along sibling, younger sibling of your best friend. Now, I can say that because I was that annoying tag-along younger sibling, still am sometimes, but while the minor prophets are minor in size or the duration of their, of their prophetic ministry, they are major in content. Equally as so as um, compared to what we call the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, each week, um, we'll feature a different teacher. So if I'm boring you already, you're in luck because next week is someone totally different probably much more eloquent, or at least sounds like an Aussie. So um, stay, stay tuned, come back next week, you'll find out who that is. We have titled this series, Covenant Faithfulness. In summary, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi is a reminder that our hope is founded upon God's unchanging character. What he has unconditionally promised to do, he will surely bring about. Through Malachi, Yahweh will continually, continually recount his faithfulness to his unconditional covenants, despite the repeated failures and faithlessness of the imperfect people through whom he is working out his perfect plan. So today, we're going to kick off this series, and we will define biblical covenants, because if we're talking about covenant faithfulness, we should know what a covenant is. We're going to consider the historical context of Yahweh's oracle to Israel through Malachi. We'll get an outline of this oracle and some of its key themes, and then we will dive into the first section, Malachi 1 through 5. Now, over the next few weeks, we will be going through each of these sections in greater, greater detail, what it meant to the original audience, uh, relevant application for us today. Because as we mentioned earlier in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God has given us his word that we, his people, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work that he wants us to accomplish and has set apart for us to do in Christ as we read in Ephesians 2.10. There's a lot of good work to do. And there's also a lot of sin to avoid. So um, now that Pretty much half of my time is gone. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the sermon. Father, I thank you so much that you have preserved your word for us. I thank you so much that we can read your word in our own language, because you are the God who desires to communicate. And throughout history, you've put on the heart and mind of your followers to translate this uh, into their own language. And I thank you so much that in it, you teach us about yourself. You reveal things to about us, about ourselves. 
And you draw us, you seek to draw us to yourself so that we can be a light to others as well. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. I pray that um, I would just be a conduit and that it would be you speaking your words through me because your words are the ones that matter. So Father, we just um, thank you for this community. Lead us and guide us in the way that you want us to be. I pray that you would just, uh, God, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and teach us more about yourself and about your word through, through our study today. Amen. So, covenant faithfulness. What are biblical covenants? In Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Eight Covenants of the Bible, he says, since much of God's relationship to man is based upon covenantal relationships, a study of the eight covenants in Scripture is, very, is a very important aspect to the correct understanding of Scripture as a whole. So that does bring that natural question, what is a covenant? Simply stated, a covenant is a binding agreement between two or more people. Deep, I know. Really foreign concept. Um, employment's con employment contracts, transfer of land or property agreements, marriage agreements, military alliances. These are all general types of covenants between two and sometimes more people or more parties. We use them today. I just signed one for an employment contract a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty exciting. Um, now, these covenants can be between humans, or they can be between humans and a deity. Specifically in Scripture, the eight covenants that we refer to are God's covenants with people. Some are to all of his image bearers, all people, all of mankind in general, and some are specifically to those he has called to bear his name to the nations. In scripture, there are two types of covenants, conditional and unconditional. The conditional covenants are bilateral agreements between two parties. Between God and man, a conditional covenant is essentially a divine if-then statement. It's an agreement where God promises to grant certain blessings on the condition that the other party fulfills certain conditions contained within that covenant. Often in scripture, we see these covenants with God entered into and um, God enters into these covenants. He upholds them, but mankind does not, and that results in punishment. So in these divine if-then covenants, God outlines a provision, what he will do, for the participants of the covenant, that is who it involves, and he also gives the consequences for unfaithfulness to that covenant. What happens if you break it? What are the promises? Who does it involve? What happens if you break it? We could say punishments for alliteration, but often the consequences are just a natural outcome of doing evil, or doing unrighteous things, which stand in contrast to the doing of righteous things that God has informed in the terms of the covenant. Fruchtenbaum says, one's response to the covenant, covenant agreement brings either blessings or curses. The blessings are secured by obedience, and man must meet his, condi his conditions before God will meet his. Now, of these eight God-to-man covenants in Scripture, and I'll ask this, shout it out if you want to, um, 
Of the eight covenants, how many do you think are conditional covenants? Any guesses? Half a dozen? Three? Four? Now, I'll just throw out the answer then. Only two. The Edenic covenant in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, and then again, or well, expounded upon in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And then the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20, verse 1, all the way through Deuteronomy 28, verse 68. We'll touch on both of these in a moment, but definitely not going through the entire Mosaic covenant because we just, we don't have enough time. The other six covenants in scripture are unconditional covenants. If the conditional covenant is a divine if-then statement, then unconditional covenants are divine then-then statements. As in what God says and promises he will do, he will surely do. These are unilateral, one-directional covenants that are sovereign acts by God, whereby he unconditionally obligates himself to bring about a definite blessing and conditions for the other party of agreement. You could summarize these as saying that they are God's I will statements or his I will promises. Blessings are secured by grace. The conditions in the covenant which God requests his recipients to fulfill are out of gratitude. But they are not in and of themselves the basis of God's fulfilling his promises. He has unconditionally bound himself by his own character and nature. Faithful is he who calls you and he will do it. So whereas conditional covenants outline the provisions, the participants, and the consequences for covenantal unfaithfulness, unconditional covenants are Yahweh's promises to covenanted participants, which will be perfectly carried out because the fulfillment of his promise depends entirely on him. That's a lot of information, but I find it so, so encouraging that his faithfulness is in his character, it's in his nature, it's not dependent upon my ability to uphold that, uh, that aspect, and we'll see that play out throughout scripture. Now I'm just curious if anyone else is thinking when, when we hear about God perfectly um, authoring and perfecting a covenant, if anyone else is thinking of Hebrews 12.2 that says, reminds us to walk with the Lord by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus or keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. If you're thinking that, me too. Now, how do these covenants play out? And what impact do they have on our view of scripture? For that, let's look at the first two as a pretty perfect example. So the first covenant is the Edenic covenant. We read about this in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, and then again in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Here, Yahweh creates mankind in his own image. He blesses them and he instructs them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. So the participants in this are God and mankind, with Adam as the representative of all mankind. This is the provision of the covenant. God creates mankind in his image, as his image bearers. He blesses them, and then he invites them to be partners in stewarding his creation. 
In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, Yahweh points back to how he has set up mankind for optimal flourishing. He tells them that they can eat from any tree in the Garden of, Garden of Eden, all sorts of trees, amazing amount of variety that God has created for their enrichment and their enjoyment. And then he places one tree off limits. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from this one specific tree has devastating consequences. We know how that ended. We live it every single day. In this if-then covenant, the proposal was unparalleled blessing and flourishing if Adam and Eve continued to trust and rely on Yahweh, trust his definition of good and evil. But when they decided to seize that knowledge of good and evil for themselves and make that decision to take of the tree, to eat of it in defiance to God, rather than to rely on their creator, the punishment was death. It's interesting to note that in Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then in Genesis 3, as soon as they take from that fruit, they realize they're naked and they become incredibly ashamed. In an instant, mankind's ability to accurately reflect Yahweh's character as his image bearers was shattered. Like a mirror dashed upon the ground, the image, that God, the image of God that mankind would reflect would be at best bits and pieces of the Holy One. Whereas mankind were created to be God's partners in stewarding his creation, they have now become a problem, and the corruption extended not just to Adam and Eve, but to the entirety of creation. So now God has a choice. Mankind has broken the covenant, and the consequence is death, spiritual separation from him. So, does he give up? Does he restart the process, recreate everything? Or does he embark on a reconciliation plan? And this brings us to our second biblical covenant. It's the first unconditional I will covenant, the Adamic covenant. You can read this in Genesis 3, 14 to 19. So the participants of this are Yahweh and Adam. Again, Adam is representative, representative of all humanity. There's an overarching promise that's given here, and that is that a Messiah, an anointed one, will come as the seed of the woman. He will come, he will crush Satan and offer redemption. This prophecy that the Messiah would be the seed of the woman actually goes against the biblical norm of genealogical teaching, saying that, that any sort of blessing would be traced through the male line. And it doesn't really make sense as to why the promise would be given to the seed of the woman until Isaiah 7.14 reveals that the Messiah will be conceived of a virgin. God's I will statement to mankind is essentially, I will not give up on you. I will embark on a rescue plan. I will redeem you. So, how does mankind respond to God's unconditional promise and that grace? Unsurprisingly, not perfectly. Adam and Eve's oldest son kills his younger brother in Genesis 4. Then he's driven out of their presence. As the human race grows, Rather than drawing near to God, they drive themselves away from him to the point where we read in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
As a result of, of this, Yahweh is sorry that he's even made mankind, and he decides to wipe out mankind to restart with one righteous man and his family. Now, that word, wipe out, it has a connotation of cleansing, not just destruction, but a cleansing, like one would cleanse a dish after a meal so that it can be reused again. So it's not just a destructive term. It is a term of purification. After the flood, Noah offers a sacrifice to God. And God promises in Genesis 8.21, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done with a flood. Why is this? Well, because if God kept doing that over and over again, he realizes mankind is never going to draw near to him on their own. And he would just have to keep restarting, restarting, restarting. So he reveals a little bit more about his plan of salvation. And it gives us our second unconditional covenant, the Noahic covenant. In Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17, this is the, an example of an unconditional covenant where God promises to never again destroy the earth by a flood and places a sign of a rainbow as a reminder. Then he blesses Noah as mankind's representative. He reissues that blessing that he gave to Adam in Genesis 2 to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and he expands on it even more. So participants, Yahweh and Noah as representative of all mankind. The overarching promise is that God will never again destroy the world by a flood. He will continue to work out his covenantal promise. Now, out of curiosity, I was just thinking about this uh, this week as I was studying. Imagine what went through Noah's mind the first time after he comes out of the ark, he hears a crack of thunder and sees raindrops. Last time that happened was pretty traumatic. Um, so when he looks up and sees the rainbow, he's automatically reminded of God's faithfulness and God's promise. Noah, it's not gonna happen the same way. Don't worry. Can you imagine the peace that Noah may have felt and what a sign of relief it would be to, to remember that God is faithful. Let me ask this. Are there certain things that come to memory that, that you see, you, you hear, you, or you smell them, you immediately experience a moment of God's faithfulness in your life personally? Like the rainbow was to Noah, are there certain things that God has put just as reminders in your own life that automatically bring you peace? That bring you back to a time where the Lord was doing something, you didn't really see it, maybe it was a really difficult experience, but then God brought you through it. And he somehow reminds you that I was there all along. That's what the rainbow was for Noah. That's what a full moon is to me because of something that happened earlier in my childhood that I thought I was not going to make it out of a situation sliding down an icy hill, but I did. And as soon as I got to the bottom of that, that hill and my car actually came to a stop rather than going into a ditch either side or off the side of a mountain, I looked up and I saw the full moon. And it was as if the Lord said, I'm watching over you, I've got you. What's something like that in your own life? 
where the Lord just automatically reminds you of his faithfulness, his care, his love for you. So God has given this, this next unconditional promise. How does mankind respond to this unconditional covenant? Well, Noah gets drunk. One of his sons does something shameful involving his father's nakedness. So Noah curses his son, which oddly are the very first words that we have recorded of Noah in scripture. Mankind is off to another really great start, aren't we? Oh, it gets better, doesn't it? It's got to get better than that. God has blessed mankind, commands them to fill the earth. And then in Genesis 11, we read that mankind journey east and they find a plain of, uh, in the land of Shinar and they all settle there. So rather than filling out, um, filling the earth and subduing it, they band together. They build a massive tower that um, is ultimately their bowman salute, two finger salute to God saying, we've got this, we can do it on ourselves, let's make a great name for ourselves. And um, then we see how God separates man, mankind scatters them, gives us all these beautiful languages that we have. Again, we see that when mankind defines good and evil for themselves, they gravitate toward evil away from God every time. So the question is, if mankind is naturally inclined to evil from their youth, as Genesis 8.21 says, and tends toward rebellion rather than relationship, how will the Messiah be born of a woman and bring salvation? And this, this brings us to a man called Abram. From among the nations, God chooses this man Abraham, Abram, Abraham, as his vessel, through which he will bless all the families of the earth, and through which he will fulfill his unconditional covenant promised back in Genesis 3. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 says, Now Adonai said to Abraham, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your, great, your name great. And you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the participants of this covenant are God and Abraham. This overarching promise, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless you so that you may be a blessing. Now God expands on this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, God promises a land to, um, promises to give a land to Abram's descendants. In Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17, Abraham is promised an expansive land and innumerable descendants, so it increases. In Genesis 15, God expands on this promise even more, and he dials in their full meaning of, the, that the numer of all the numerous families that would come from Abraham, the fulfillment of Genesis 12:3 will come through one family and one family only. In Genesis 17, God ushers in the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Here's an interesting side note. We know from Genesis 14 and also Job chapter 1 that there were other righteous, God-fearing people that lived at the same time as Abraham, 
So why did God choose Abraham rather than, say, Melchizedek of Genesis 14 or Job of Job 1? We don't know. But it is important to note that God is not choosing Abraham or his family line to be saved necessarily, but to be the vehicle through which he will work out his redemptive process. For Abram, in every single generation, God's Genesis 12.3 promise will be carried on through only one of his descendants. We could call them the seed son, the seed born of the woman, the seed son, because it is through them that the promised Messiah will ultimately be born. This seed son is traced through Isaac rather than Ishmael. And then through Isaac's son, Jacob, rather than his brother, Esau. And further, through the line of Judah, rather than one of his other 11 brothers. This is crucial to remember, especially when we get into Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. But for the sake of time, we won't go further into that um, for the moment. But we really need to remember that God is always choosing one out of many to bring his promise about. While God chooses to bless Abram in order that Abram might be a blessing, if we look at Abram, Abram's life, it was one that was full of actions that brought both blessings and, and curses. In many ways, Abraham's life is a picture of our own. Times of faithfulness, times of faithlessness. He's far from perfect, but God unconditionally bound himself to bring about his perfect plan through this imperfect man. The last covenant that we'll touch on today is the second conditional divine if-then covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. And uh, no, we're not going to go through Exodus 20 verses 1 all the way through Deuteronomy, as I said earlier. It's a very lengthy narrative. But by way of reminder, Yahweh in Exodus 20 Yahweh has rescued the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, and a host of non-Israelites as well who decided to join them because they believed Yahweh is who he says he is, out of slavery in the land of Egypt. He did this through 10 miracles that were signs that he used in order to establish him as the I am who I am, Yahweh, to both the Israelites who'd been enslaved for over 400 years and the Egyptians, the nation that was enslaving them, who were polytheistic pagan, pagans that had multiple gods. Through these signs, God proved that he is the God most high. He is the only God to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, and then also by extension to every other culture that would hear of the great things that he had done for his people. After bringing them out of slavery and destroying the Egyptian army, Yahweh leads the people to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law. The participants in the Mosaic Covenant were God and the entire nation of Israel. The provisions are the law. Now, more than the Ten Commandments, this law contained 613 commandments. 248 of these were positive, as in things that they must do, righteous things that they ought to do and 365 negative commands, things that they were forbidden from doing. Throughout this covenant, he also details offerings in Leviticus uh, 1 through 7, 
which would temporarily cover over the sins of the people. Later, he gives the floor plan for the the tabernacle and its furniture, a symbol-rich, earthly copy of a heavenly reality that would function as a mobile place of Yahweh's presence, where the priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of God's covenant community. Really interestingly to me, I recently learned that the Hebrew word for offering has a meaning along the lines of something brought near. Not just some, not something killed, but something brought near to the presence of God. And this speaks to God's desire for relational closeness with his people, and we know with all mankind. He desires relational closeness more than just rote religion or servitude. Of the law, it's also important to note that while it does outline conduct and lifestyle expectations, it is not, fulfilling those does not bring salvation. After all, who could complete all 248 positive commands perfectly and avoid all 365 negative commands without mistake? As Paul says, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. So, if the law didn't bring, bring salvation, what was it meant for? In a word, and a very insufficient word, reputation. See, back in Genesis 1, we read that all mankind are God's image bearers. But that image was shattered and distorted when Adam and Eve chose to define good and evil for themselves in the Garden of Eden. Now, through the Mosaic Covenant, God is defying one specific people group, as not only those who will bear his image, but those who will bear his name among all the nations. And when they bear his name righteously, they reflect his character. He promises to bless them in order to draw attention and and glory to himself, to draw more people to himself. Consider what Christ said on the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. The example that Israel was to set to the nations around them would either draw people toward Yahweh or they would drive, him, drive them away further from Yahweh. And if this was the imperfect group of people that God was using to bring about his perfect will, he wanted their conduct to reflect his character and their actions to be such that it would bring near those around them, because he desires a relationship with everyone. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, we're told that as we believers have been reconciled to God through Christ, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation, and he considers us his ambassadors. My life and testimony, your life and testimony, Our conduct toward each other and toward everyone that we come into contact with will ultimately either draw people toward God or drive them away. So let me ask this stinger, at least it was for me. (laughs) How seriously do I think that someone's going to take my message of reconciliation to God if they look at my life and they see fractured relationships or unforgiveness? Lying, stealing, abuse, anger. All those things that we see in the world. 
I actually think they will take it very seriously in the wrong way. When I behave in such a way, rather than being a blessing to them and a way that could encourage them to be brought near to God, I will be a curse to them. And they'll look at me and they'll say, I want nothing to do with that. There's nothing different about you Christians. At least nothing that I want. Now this is why we need scripture. It's why we need prayer. It's why we need loving correction unto life and godliness by faithful believers. Because good or bad, people will see my deeds. And either they will praise my Father in heaven or they will profane his name. For the Israelites under the Mosaic Covenant, the blessings for bearing Yahweh's name were immeasurable. But so too were the punishments for bearing his name in vain. Well, in each generation, there were individuals who followed Yahweh. By and large, the people of Israel met Yahweh's unconditional faithfulness with faithlessness and failure. So Yahweh brings them into the land under the leadership of Joshua. He rescues them from a host of enemies over the period of the judges. When they reject him as their head, he gives them Saul to unite the 12 tribes as a king. When Saul falls short, Yahweh rises up David and gives more unconditional promises of an eternal throne and more promises about his rescue plan through the Messiah. When David dies, his, Solomon, his son Solomon builds Yahweh a temple in Jerusalem rather than a temporary tabernacle where they had been worshiping prior. They also enjoy unmatched peace and prosperity. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is split. Yahweh faithfully continues to send his prophets and exhort and warn them to walk in righteousness and to bear his name faithfully, but they refuse. And so after a time, the 10 northern tribes of Israel are conquered and then scattered abroad by the Assyrians. Still, he calls to them with love, encouragement, and warning through his prophets. When at last the two southern tribes of Judah are conquered by Babylon, he inspires Jeremiah to encourage them that after 70 years, they will return to Jerusalem. But in the meantime, be a blessing to Babylon, to the place where you are in captivity and eagerly await your return home. After 70 years of captivity, Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian alliance and Cyrus learns of a prophecy that he himself will fulfill. And under, under him, many Jews return to Jerusalem and they rebuild the second temple, supported very much by the royal treasury. Around this time, the prophet Ezra the scribe Ezra, reads out the law for the first time in at least a generation, and the people mourn, seeing how, full sh how short they have fallen of this. They mourn, but they are not transformed. Now, it's around this time, after the geographic return of some of the Jews to Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the temple, reinstitution of, of the sacrifices in 516 BC, that Malachi comes onto the scene with Yahweh's oracle to say, my beloved chosen people, I have called you back to Jerusalem as I promised I would. And you are geographically close to me, 
but your hearts are still in Babylon, Egypt, or with those other foreign gods. A core theme in the Oracle of Malachi is Yahweh's faithfulness to his unconditional covenants, often despite the faithlessness of those through whom he will bring and fulfill his covenantal promises. And when God is bound by his character and his covenant, he will surely bring it about. Where mankind is insufficient, Yahweh will step in. He will come down. He will bring hope for the nations himself. All the while, inviting, calling, pleading with his people to be partakers of blessing rather than merely watching it unfold. So with that, we've got eight minutes. Awesome. Let's look at the uh, outline of Malachi. So it's against this backdrop of God's covenantal faithfulness all throughout Scripture and his people's chronic failure that we read in Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. All right. So the structure of Malachi follows, um, follows a very similar way to what Jewish priests would use to resolve legal conflicts. It's as though Malachi is mediating a, a court case between Yahweh and his chosen people. And in this, there are six disputes, and they follow a consistent pattern. Yahweh will make a statement of truth concerning his character. A hypothetical audience will re, re, um, offer a rebuttal in the form of a question, and then Yahweh will respond with supporting evidence. There are six of these disputes in Malachi, and they form our outline. On Malachi 1, verses 2 to 5, God mentions his love for Israel, contrast to Edom. In Malachi 1, verses, uh, 1, verse 6 through 2, 9, God rebukes the priests for failing to honor him. In chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, God rebukes the Israelites for being unfaithful to him and unfaithful to one another. In chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5, God talks about how he is just. It is here that we read about the messenger of Yahweh. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, God rebukes the people for withholding tithes. In chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3, he says that those who revere God will be blessed on the day of the Lord. And in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there's a summary and there's a prophecy about the Elijah to come. So that's going to be our outline over the next few weeks, and a different teacher will be teaching on, on those topics. Now, some of the core themes that Malachi touches on, one of them is the motivation or the heart behind worship. See, true worship is not a mathematical algorithm for blessing. Performing rituals does not guarantee God's blessing. In fact, when religion is practiced for personal gain, it can cause great harm. Another theme is that God desires relationship, not empty sacrifice. He utterly rejects defiled sacrifices, as we will see. We'll also see that God has not given up on his Adamic or Abrahamic covenants, for he has conditionally bound himself to work through Abram's line. And we look, when we look at the covenant faithfulness 
in Malachi, we see that God's unwavering faithfulness and to his unconditional covenants is often despite the faithlessness of those through whom he would bring and fulfill those promises. When God is bound by his character and his covenant, he will surely bring it about. Where mankind is sufficient, he'll step in, he'll come down. He will be that hope for the nations himself. Now, on another note, Malachi is written to be read aloud in a corporate setting. And had I gone a little more quickly, I would have loved to have done that today, to read through the entire, uh, the entire account aloud. But what I would encourage you to do is over the next week, um, as a family or with friends, sit down and read the book of Malachi in one sitting, at least once. It takes about 10 minutes. And it's just amazing to listen to the entire flow of God making a statement about his character. The people saying, well, come on, really, we don't believe you. And then God giving evidence. And there are so many things in this, in this book that have just really encouraged me and also really um, convicted me in this study. But um, as we don't have time for that, I will encourage you to, to do that as your family units. And we'll just look at a few things from Malachi verses uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now, it starts off an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. He says, I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I show my love for you. I have loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as a land of wickedness, and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly, the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders, or the Lord will be praised among the nations. So a few short notes that, uh, that we'll go through quickly as we, as we wrap up. This prophecy to God's chosen people through, uh, this is a prophecy to God's people, Israel, through Malachi. Malachi is a Hebrew word for my messenger. As such, it might be a title rather than a name. There are really good, uh, there's really good evidence for both convictions as to whether it is a prophet called Malachi or it is my messenger. But the main consideration is, regardless of the mouthpiece, the word of the Lord is what is important. In Malachi 1-2, Yahweh makes a claim about his character. He says, I have loved you. Now, the Hebrew term for love in this context is not an, an emotional or even necessarily a relational term. It's a technical term in ancient Near Eastern treaties and covenant texts to indicate a choice or election to a covenant relationship. 
In the next part of Malachi 1-2, this hypothetical audience questions his claim, saying, how have you loved us? So in uh, verse 2, the end of verse 2 through verse 4, Yahweh provides evidence. He says, was not Esau, Jacob's older brother? Now, this is an important thing to note because Esau being the firstborn, through his culture, he should have received all of the blessings. God's promise through to Abram in Genesis 12, 3 should have continued through Esau's line to fit with ancient Near Eastern covenants. However, God routinely upsets this pattern by favoring the younger son, say with Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And after the Abrahamic covenant, he chooses to pass the promise of the seed son through the younger brother, particularly through Isaac, Judah, and David. Also, this choosing of the younger rather than the older was foretold to Rebecca in Genesis 25:23, where it says, the sons in your womb will become two nations. Your older son will serve your younger. Yahweh continues to respond, yet I have loved or chosen Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, it's worth noting that neither Esau nor Jacob were exactly stand-up characters. Esau seemed at best to be apathetic towards Yahweh, and Jacob we know was a deceiver and not exactly the model character at all. So this is a good reminder that Yahweh works out his perfect plan using imperfect people. You might be a little bit sick of hearing me say that, and if you are, good. Uh, maybe it'll stick, who knows. Again, the term loved here is covenant language for chosen to a relationship. In the same way, hated, is also a technical term which basically means did not choose. Now Arnold Fruchtenbaum equates this love and hated terms as with going to a shoe shop and choosing a pair of shoes that you loved, you buy them, and then considering all the shoes that you didn't buy to be hated. It just essentially means not chosen. And again, it's covenantal language referring to an entire nation or an entire people group rather than an individual. God chose to continue the line of the seed son through Jacob, not through Esau. That's essentially what he's saying here. Now, some do like to point to what uh, to Paul's use of this statement in Romans to take it to mean individual election unto salvation. However, in the context of Malachi, it's covenant language. Um, referring to the line through whom the Messiah would be born, and it refers to nations, not, uh, nations that would come from Jacob and Esau rather than individuals. So that, um, there are quite a few scholars that say that actually is not an accurate reading of what Malachi was saying and what Paul was saying about Malachi. Now, the remaining verses about Edom's repeated destruction show the Israelites how completely Yahweh loved them in comparison to how he treated Edom. Whereas Edom would repeatedly be destroyed, Yahweh has repeatedly committed himself to Israel's restoration. And in Malachi 1.5, he says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be, manifest, uh, be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. When the Israelites, who had returned from Babylonian captivity, would see the repeated destruction of Edom, 
they would be reminded of Yahweh's covenantal faithfulness toward them as his chosen people. And this was meant to draw them near to him out of gratitude, that they would walk rightly with him so as to be a light and draw the other nations to him. The Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. This is a proclamation of praise. It's a song of worship that draws us back to Genesis 12, 3. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. As we wrap up our introduction of Malachi, there are a few bullet points. Firstly, God's relationship to mankind is covenantal. Two of Two of the biblical covenants are conditional divine if-then statements where God offers blessings for adhering to the terms of the covenant. Six of the biblical covenants are unconditional, divine I-will statements that God binds himself to. God works out his perfect plan through imperfect people. To work out his perfect plan, he's bound himself to work with the materials that he has, imperfect people. But like a master artist making a mosaic or someone who restores ceramics, he bonds broken, jagged pieces together with his perfect intention to create something beautiful that will reveal his plan of salvation, restoration, and relationship to him. Like Abraham, he blesses us in order that we might be a blessing to others around us. And like Israel, believers are called not only to bear his image, but also to bear his name in such a way that others would see our good deeds and praise our Father who's in heaven. And while we journey through Malachi, we're gonna cover some very, very heavy, very convicting topics, but woven throughout all of them is God's covenantal faithfulness, his promise to bring hope for all the nations, even when we are unfaithful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you love us, that you've called us according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will, that you desire to draw us near to yourself. Father, I thank you so much again for your word. I thank you for this community of believers who seek to love you and serve you in their, their own lives. Over the coming weeks, I pray that you would just continually reach out to us, draw us to you, show us, show us opportunities that you want us to be a blessing to others around us, an encouragement, an exhortation, even an opportunity of evangelism. And Lord, continue to lead us and guide us to create us into the people that you want us to be as you seek to make us into a masterpiece in the image of your Son and our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.